BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 23 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 23 Mr. Pocket said he was glad to see me, and he hoped I was not sorry to see him. "'For I really am not,' he added, with his son's smile, "'an alarming personage.' He was a young-looking man, in spite of his perplexities and his very grey hair, and his manner seemed quite natural. I use the word natural, in the sense of its being unaffected. There was something comic in his distraught way, as though it would have been downright ludicrous, but for his own perception, that it was very near being so. When he had talked with me a little, he said to Mrs. Pocket, with a rather anxious contraction of his eyebrows, which were black and handsome, "'Belinda, I hope you have welcomed Mr. Pip.' And she looked up from her book, and said, "'Yes.' She then smiled upon me, in an absent state of mind, and asked me if I liked the taste of orange flower-water. As the question had no bearing, near or remote, on any foregone or subsequent transaction, I considered it to have been thrown out, like her previous approaches, in general conversational condescension. I found out, within a few hours, and may mention at once, that Mrs. Pocket was the only daughter of a certain quite accidental deceased knight, who had invented for himself a conviction that his deceased father would have been made a baronet, but for somebody's determined opposition arising out of entirely personal motives. I forget whose, if I ever knew. The sovereigns, the prime ministers, the lord chancellors, the archbishop of Canterbury's, anybody's and had tacked himself on to the nobles of the earth, in right of this quite supposititious fact. I believe he had been knighted himself, for storming the English grammar at the point of the pen, in a desperate address, engrossed on vellum, on the occasion of the laying of the first stone of some building or other, and for handing some royal personage either the trowel or the mortar. Be that as it may, he had directed Mrs. Pocket to be brought up from her cradle, as one who in the nature of things must marry a title, and who was to be guarded from the acquisition of plebeian domestic knowledge. So successful a watch and ward had been established over the young lady, by this judicious parent, that she had grown up highly ornamental, but perfectly helpless and useless. With her character thus happily formed, in the first bloom of her youth she had encountered Mr. Pocket, who was also 
in the first bloom of youth, and not quite decided whether to mount to the woolsack or to roof himself in with a mitre. As his doing the one or the other was a mere question of time, he and Mrs. Pocket had taken time by the forelock, when, to judge from its length, it would seem to have wanted cutting, and had married without the knowledge of the judicious parent. The judicious parent, having nothing to bestow or withhold but his blessing, had handsomely settled that dower upon them after a short struggle, and had informed Mr. Pocket that his wife was a treasure for a prince. Mr. Pocket had invested the prince's treasure in the ways of the world ever since, and it was supposed to have brought him in but indifferent interest. Still, Mrs. Pocket was, in general, the object of a queer sort of respectful pity, because she had not married a title, while Mr. Pocket was the object of a queer sort of forgiving reproach, because he had never got one. Mr. Pocket took me into the house, and showed me my room, which was a pleasant one, and so furnished as that I could use it with comfort for my own private sitting-room. He then knocked at the doors of two other similar rooms, and introduced me to their occupants by name Drummle and Startop. Drummle, an old-looking young man of a heavy order of architecture, was whistling. Startop, younger in years and appearance, was reading and holding his head, as if he thought himself in danger of exploding it with too strong a charge of knowledge. Both Mr. and Mrs. Pocket had such a noticeable air of being in somebody else's hands, that I wondered who really was in possession of the house, and let them live there, until I found this unknown power to be the servants. It was a smooth way of going on, perhaps in respect of saving trouble, but it had the appearance of being expensive, for the servants felt it a duty they owed to themselves to be nice in their eating and drinking, and to keep a deal of company downstairs. They allowed a very liberal table to Mr. and Mrs. Pocket, Yet it always appeared to me that by far the best part of the house to have boarded in would have been the kitchen, always supposing the boarder capable of self-defence, for, before I had been there a week, a neighbouring lady with whom the family were personally unacquainted, wrote in to say that she had seen Millers slapping the baby. This greatly distressed Mrs. Pocket, who burst into tears on receiving the note, and said that it was an extraordinary thing that the neighbours couldn't mind their own business. By degrees I learnt, and chiefly from Herbert, that Mr. Pocket had been educated at Harrow, and at Cambridge, where he had distinguished himself, but that when he had had the happiness of marrying Mrs. Pocket very early in life, he had impaired his prospects, and taken up the calling of a grinder. After grinding a number of dull blades, of whom it was remarkable that their fathers, when influential, were always going to help him to preferment, but always forgot to do it when the blades had left the grindstone. He had wearied of that poor work, and had come to London. Here, after gradually failing in loftier hopes, he had read with divers, who had lacked opportunities or neglected them, and had refurbished divers, others, for special occasions, and had turned his acquirements the account of literary compilation, and correction, and on such means, added to some very moderate private resources, still maintained the house I saw. Mr. and Mrs. Pocket had a toady neighbour, a widow lady of that highly sympathetic nature that she agreed with everybody, blessed everybody, and shed smiles and tears on everybody, according to circumstances. This lady's name was Mrs. Coiler, and I had the honour of taking her down to dinner on the day of my installation. 
She gave me to understand on the stairs that it was a blow to dear Mrs. Pocket, that dear Mr. Pocket should be under the necessity of receiving gentlemen to read with him. That did not extend to me, she told me in a gush of love and confidence. At that time I had known her something less than five minutes. If they were all like me, it would be quite another thing. "'But, dear Mrs. Pocket,' said Mrs. Coyler, "'after her early disappointment—not that dear Mr. Pocket was to blame in that—requires so much luxury and elegance.' "'Yes, ma'am,' I said to stop her, for I was afraid she was going to cry. "'And she is of so aristocratic a disposition.' "'Yes, ma'am,' I said again, with the same object as before. "'That it is hard,' said Mrs. Coyler, "'to have dear Mr. Pocket's time and attention diverted from dear Mrs. Pocket.' I could not help thinking that it might be harder if the butcher's time and attention were diverted from dear Mrs. Pocket. But I said nothing, and indeed had enough to do in keeping a bashful watch upon my company manners. It came to my knowledge, through what passed between Mrs. Pocket and Drummle, while I was attentive to my knife and fork, spoon, glasses, and other instruments of self-destruction, that Drummle, whose Christian name was Bentley, was actually the next heir but one to a baronetcy. It further appeared that the book I had seen Mrs. Pocket reading in the garden was all about titles, and that she knew the exact date at which her grandpapa would have come into the book, if he ever had come at all. Drummle didn't say much, but in his limited way— he struck me as a sulky kind of fellow. He spoke as one of the elect, and recognised Mrs. Pocket as a woman and a sister. No one but themselves and Mrs. Coyler, the toady neighbour, showed any interest in this part of the conversation, and it appeared to me that it was painful to Herbert. But it promised to last a long time, when the page came in with the announcement of a domestic affliction. It was, in effect, that the cook had mislaid the beef— to my unutterable amazement, I now, for the first time, saw Mr. Pocket relieve his mind by going through a performance that struck me as very extraordinary, but which made no impression on anybody else, and with which I soon became as familiar as the rest. He laid down the carving-knife and fork, being engaged in carving at the moment, put his two hands into his disturbed hair, and appeared to make an extraordinary effort to lift himself up by it. When he had done this, and had not lifted himself up at all, he quietly went on with what he was about. Mrs. Coyler then changed the subject, and began to flatter me. I liked it for a few moments, but she flattered me so very grossly that the pleasure was soon over. She had a serpentine way of coming close at me when she pretended to be vitally interested in the friends and localities I had left, which was altogether snaky and fork-tongued, and when she made an occasional bounce upon Startop, who said very little to her, or upon Drummle, who said less, I rather envied them for being on the opposite side of the table. After dinner the children were introduced, and Mrs. Coyler made admiring comments on their eyes, noses, and legs, a sagacious way of improving their minds. There were four little girls, and two little boys, besides the baby, who might have been either, and the baby's next successor, who was as yet neither. They were brought in by Flopson and Millers, much as though those two non-commissioned officers had been recruiting somewhere for children, and had enlisted these. 
while Mrs. Pocket looked at the young nobles that ought to have been, as if she rather thought she had had the pleasure of inspecting them before, but didn't quite know what to make of them. "'Here, give me your fork, Mum, and take the baby,' said Flopson. "'Don't take it that way, or you'll get its head under the table.' Thus advised, Mrs. Pocket took it the other way, and got its head upon the table, which was announced to all present by a prodigious concussion. "'Dear, dear, give it back to me, Mum,' said Flopson. "'And Miss Jane, come and dance to baby, do.' One of the little girls, a mere mite, who seemed to have prematurely taken upon herself some charge of the others, stepped out of her place by me, and danced to and from the baby, until it left off crying and laughed. Then all the children laughed, and Mr. Pocket, who in the meantime had twice endeavoured to lift himself up by the hair, laughed, and we all laughed, and were glad. Flopson, by dint of doubling the baby at the joints like a Dutch doll, then got it safely into Mrs. Pocket's lap, and gave her the nutcrackers to play with, at the same time recommending Mrs. Pocket to take notice that the handles of that instrument were not likely to agree with its eyes, and sharply charging Miss Jane to look after the same. Then the two nurses left the room, and had a lively scuffle on the staircase for the dissipated page, who had waited at dinner, and who had clearly lost half his buttons at the gaming-table. I was made very uneasy in my mind by Mrs. Pocket's falling into a discussion with Drummle, respecting two baronetcies, while she ate a sliced orange steeped in sugar and wine, and forgetting all about the baby on her lap, who did most appalling things with the nutcrackers. At length, little Jane, perceiving its young brains to be imperilled, softly left her place, and with many small artifices, coaxed the dangerous weapon away. Mrs. Pocket finished her orange at about the same time, and not approving of this, said to Jane, "'You naughty child! How dare you! Go and sit down this instant!' "'Mama, dear,' lisped the little girl, "'Baby, who'd have put his eyes out?' "'How dare you tell me so!' retorted Mrs. Pocket. "'Go and sit down in your chair this moment.' Mrs. Pocket's dignity was so crushing that I felt quite abashed, as if I myself had done something to rouse it. "'Belinda,' remonstrated Mr. Pocket from the other end of the table, "'how can you be so unreasonable? Jane only interfered for the protection of the baby.' "'I will not allow anybody to interfere.' said Mrs. Pocket. "'I am surprised, Matthew, that you, do, you should expose me to the affront of interference.' "'Good God!' cried Mr. Pocket, in an outbreak of desolate desperation. "'Are infants to be nutcrackered into their tombs, and is nobody to save them?' "'I will not be interfered with by Jane,' said Mrs. Pocket, with a majestic glance at that innocent little offender. "'I hope I know my poor grandpapa's position.' Jane, indeed. Mr. Pocket got his hands in his hair again, and this time really did lift himself some inches out of his chair. "'Hear this!' he helplessly exclaimed to the elements. "'Babies are to be nutcracker dead, for people's poor grandpapa's positions.' Then he let himself down again, and became silent. We all looked awkwardly at the tablecloth while this was going on. A pause succeeded during which the honest and irrepressible baby made a series of leaps and crows at little Jane, 
who appeared to me to be the only member of the family, irrespective of servants, with whom it had any decided acquaintance. "'Mr. Drummle,' said Mrs. Pocket, "'will you ring for Flopson? Jane, you undutiful little thing, go and lie down. Now, baby darling, come with Ma.' The baby was the soul of honour, and protested with all its might. It doubled itself up the wrong way over Mrs. Pocket's arm, exhibited a pair of knitted shoes and dimpled ankles to the company, in lieu of its soft face, and was carried out in the highest state of mutiny. And it gained its point after all, for I saw it through the window within a few minutes, being nursed by little Jane. It happened that the other five children were left behind at the dinner-table, through Flopson's having some private engagement and there not being anybody else's business. I thus became aware of the mutual relations between them and Mr. Pocket, which were exemplified in the following manner. Mr. Pocket, with the normal perplexity of his face heightened, and his hair rumpled, looked at them for some minutes, as if he couldn't make out how they came to be boarding and lodging in that establishment, and why they hadn't been billeted by nature on somebody else. Then, in a distant, missionary way, he asked them certain questions, as why little Joe had that hole in his frill. Who said, Pa, Flopson was going to mend it when she had time? And how little Fanny came by that Whitlow? Who said, Pa, Millers was going to poultice it when she didn't forget? Then he melted into parental tenderness, and gave them a shilling apiece, and told them to go and play. And then as they went out, with one very strong effort to lift himself up by the hair, he dismissed the hopeless subject. In the evening there was rowing on the river. As Drummle and Startop had each a boat, I resolved to set up mine, and to cut them both out. I was pretty good at most exercises in which country boys are adepts, but, as I was conscious of wanting elegance of style for the Thames, not to say for other waters, I at once engaged to place myself under the tuition of the winner of a prize wherry who plied at our stairs, and to whom I was introduced by my new allies. This practical authority confused me very much, by saying I had the arm of a blacksmith. If he could have known how nearly the compliment lost him his pupil, I doubt if he would have paid it. There was a supper-tray after we got home at night, and I think we should all have enjoyed ourselves, but for a rather disagreeable domestic occurrence. Mr. Pocket was in good spirits when a housemaid came in and said, "'If you please, sir, I should wish to speak to you.' "'Speak to your master?' said Mrs. Pocket, whose dignity was roused again. "'How can you think of such a thing? Go and speak to Flopson, or speak to me at some other time.' "'Begging your pardon, ma'am,' returned the housemaid. "'I should wish to speak at once, and to speak to master.' Hereupon, Mr. Pocket went out of the room, and we made the best of ourselves until he came back. "'This is a pretty thing, Belinda,' said Mr. Pocket, returning with a countenance expressive of grief and despair. "'Here's the cook, lying insensibly drunk on the kitchen floor, with a large bundle of fresh butter made up in the cupboard ready to sell for grease.' Mrs. Pocket instantly showed much amiable emotion, and said, this is that odious Sophia's doing. What do you mean, Belinda? demanded Mr. Pocket. Sophia has told you, 
said Mrs. Pocket. "'Did I not see her with my own eyes, and hear her with my own ears, come into the room just now, and ask to speak to you?' "'But has she not taken me downstairs, Belinda?' returned Mr. Pocket, "'and shown me the woman, and the bundle, too?' "'And do you defend her, Matthew?' said Mrs. Pocket, "'for making mischief?' Mr. Pocket uttered a dismal groan. "'Am I Grandpapa's granddaughter, to be nothing in the house?' said Mrs. Pocket. "'Besides, the cook has always been a very nice, respectful woman, and said in the most natural manner, when she came to look after the situation, that she felt I was born to be a duchess.' There was a sofa where Mr. Pocket stood, and he dropped upon it in the attitude of the dying gladiator. Still in that attitude, he said with a hollow voice, "'Good night, Mr. Pip,' when I deemed it advisable to go to bed and leave him. End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty four. After two or three days, when I had established myself in my room, and had gone backwards and forwards to London several times, and had ordered all I wanted of my tradesmen, Mr. Pocket and I had a long talk together. He knew more of my intended career than I knew myself, for he referred to his having been told by Mr. Jaggers that I was not designed for any profession and that I should be well enough educated for my destiny, if I could hold my own with the average of young men in prosperous circumstances. I acquiesced, of course, knowing nothing to the contrary. He advised my attending certain places in London, for the acquisition of such mere rudiments as I wanted, and my investing him with the functions of explainer and director of all my studies. He hoped that with intelligent assistance I should meet with little to discourage me, and should soon be able to dispense with any aid but his. Through his way of saying this, and much more to similar purpose, he placed himself on confidential terms with me in an admirable manner, and I may state at once that he was also so zealous and honourable in fulfilling his compact with me, that he made me zealous and honourable in fulfilling mine with him. If he had shown indifference as a master, I have no doubt I should have returned the compliment as a pupil. He gave me no such excuse, and each of us did the other justice. Nor did I ever regard him as having anything ludicrous about him, or anything but what was serious, honest, and good, in his tutor communication with me. When these points were settled, and so far carried out as that I had begun to work in earnest, it occurred to me that if I could retain my bedroom in Barnard's Inn, my life would be agreeably varied, while my manners would be none the worse for Herbert's society. Mr. Pocket did not object to this arrangement, but urged that before any step could possibly be taken in it, it must be submitted to my guardian. I felt that this delicacy arose out of the consideration that the plan would save Herbert some expense, so I went off to Little Britain, and imparted my wish to Mr. Jaggers. "'If I could buy the furniture now hired for me,' said I, and one or two other little things, I should be quite at home there. "'Go it!' 
said Mr. Jaggers, with a short laugh. "'I told you you'd get on. Well, how much do you want?' I said I didn't know how much. "'Come,' retorted Mr. Jaggers. "'How much? Fifty pounds?' "'Oh, not nearly so much. Five pounds?' said Mr. Jaggers. This was such a great fall, that I said in discomfiture, "'Oh, uh, more than that!' "'More than that, eh?' retorted Mr. Jaggers, lying in wait for me, with his hands in his pockets, his head on one side, and his eyes on the wall behind me. "'How much more?' "'It is so difficult to fix a sum,' said I, hesitating. "'Come,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'let's get at it. Twice five, will that do? Three times five, will that do? Four times five, will that do?' I said I thought that would do handsomely. Four times five will do handsomely, will it?' said Mr. Jaggers, knitting his brows. "'Now, what do you make of four times five? What do I make of it?' "'Ah,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'how much?' "'I suppose you make it twenty pounds,' said I, smiling. "'Never mind what I make it, my friend.' observed Mr. Jaggers, with a knowing and contradictory toss of his head. "'I want to know what you make it.' Twenty pounds, of course.' "'Wemmick,' said Mr. Jaggers, opening his office door, "'take Mr. Pip's written order, and pay him twenty pounds.' This strongly marked way of doing business made a strongly marked impression on me, and that not of an agreeable kind. Mr. Jaggers never laughed. But he wore great bright creaking boots, and, in poising himself on these boots, with his large head bent down and his eyebrows joined together, awaiting an answer, he sometimes caused the boots to creak, as if they laughed in a dry and suspicious way. As he happened to go out now, and as Wemmick was brisk and talkative, I said to Wemmick that I hardly knew what to make of Mr. Jaggers's manner. "'Tell him that, and he'll take it as a compliment.' answered Wemmick. "'You don't mean that you should know what to make of it?' "'Oh!' for I looked surprised. "'It's not personal. It's professional. Only professional.' Wemmick was at his desk, lunching, and crunching, on a dry, hard biscuit, pieces of which he threw from time to time into a slit of a mouth, as if he were posting them. "'Always seems to me,' said Wemmick, as if he had set a man-trap and was watching it. Suddenly, click, you're caught. Without remarking that man-traps were not among the amenities of life, I said I supposed he was very skilful. "'Deep,' said Wemmick, "'as Australia!' Pointing with his pen at the office floor, to express that Australia was understood, for the purpose of the figure, to be symmetrically on the opposite spot of the globe, "'If there was anything deeper,' added Wemmick, bringing his pen to paper, "'he'd be it.' Then I said I supposed he had a fine business, and Wemmick said, "'Capital!' Then I asked if there were many clerks, to which he replied, "'We don't run much into clerks, because there's only one Jaggers, and people won't have him at second hand. There are only four of us. Would you like to see him?' You are one of us, as I may say." I accepted the offer. 
when Mr. Wemmick had put all the biscuit into the post, and had paid me my money from a cash-box in a safe, the key of which safe he kept somewhere down his back, and produced from his coat-collar, like an iron pigtail, we went upstairs. The house was dark and shabby, and the greasy shoulders that had left their mark in Mr. Jagger's room seemed to have been shuffling up and down the staircase for years. In the front first floor, a clerk who looked something between a publican and a rat-catcher, a large, pale, puffed, swollen man, was attentively engaged with three or four people of shabby appearance, whom he treated as unceremoniously as everybody seemed to be treated who contributed to Mr. Jagger's coffers. "'Get in evidence together,' said Mr. Wemmick, as we came out, "'for the bailey.' In the room over that, a little flabby terrier of a clerk, with dangling hair, his cropping seemed to have been forgotten when he was a puppy, were similarly engaged with a man with weak eyes, whom Mr. Wemmick presented to me as a smelter who kept his pot always boiling, and who would melt me anything I pleased, and who was in an excessive white perspiration, as if he had been trying his art on himself. In a back room, a high-shouldered man with a face-ache tied up in dirty flannel, who was dressed in old black clothes that bore the appearance of having been waxed, was stooping over his work of making fair copies of the notes of the other two gentlemen for Mr. Jaggers's own use. This was all the establishment. When we went downstairs again, Wemmick led me into my guardian's room, and said, "'This you've seen already.' "'Pray,' said I, as the two odious casts with a twitchy leer upon them caught my sight again. "'Whose likenesses are those?' "'These,' said Wemmick, getting upon a chair and blowing the dust off the horrible heads before bringing them down. "'These are two celebrated ones, famous clients of ours that got us a world of credit. This chap, why, you must have come down in the night and been peeping into the inkstand to get this blot upon your eyebrow, you old rascal.' murdered his master, and, considering that he wasn't brought up to evidence, didn't plan it badly. "'Is it like him?' I asked, recoiling from the brute, as Wemmick spat upon his eyebrow and gave it a rub with his sleeve. "'Like him? It's himself, you know. The cast was made in Newgate, directly after he was taken down. You had a particular fancy for me, hadn't you, old artful?' said Wemmick. He then explained this affectionate apostrophe, by touching his brooch, representing the lady and the weeping willow at the tomb with the urn upon it, and saying, "'Had it made for me, express?' "'Is the lady anybody?' said I. "'No,' returned Wemmick. "'Only his game. You liked your bit of game, didn't you?' "'No. Deuce a bit of a lady in the case, Mr. Pip, except one. And she wasn't of this slender lady-like sort, and you wouldn't have caught her looking after this urn, unless there was something to drink in it." Wemmick's attention being thus directed to his brooch, he put down the cast, and polished the brooch with his pocket-handkerchief. "'Did that other creature come to the same end?' I asked. "'He has the same look.' "'You're right,' said Wemmick. "'It's the genuine look.' much as if one nostril was caught up with a horse-hair and a little fish-hook. Yes, he came to the same end. Quite the natural end here, I assure you. He forged wills. This blade did. 
if he didn't also put the supposed testators to sleep too. "'You were a gentlemanly cove, though?' Mr. Wemmick was again apostrophizing. "'And you said you could write Greek. "'Yeah, bounceable. What a liar you were. "'I never met such a liar as you.' Before putting his late friend on his shelf again, Wemmick touched the largest of his morning rings, and said, "'Sent out to buy it for me, only the day before.' While he was putting up the other cast, and coming down from the chair, the thought crossed my mind that all his personal jewellery was derived from like sources. As he had shown no diffidence on the subject, I ventured on the liberty of asking him the question when he stood before me, dusting his hands. "'Oh, yes!' he returned. "'These are all gifts of that kind. One brings another, you see. That's the way of it. I always take them. They're curiosities, and they're property. They may not be worth much, but, after all, they're property and portable. It don't signify to you with your brilliant lookout, but as to myself, my guiding star always is, get hold of portable property." When I had rendered homage to this light, he went on to say, in a friendly manner, "'If at any odd time, when you've nothing better to do, you wouldn't mind coming over to see me at Walworth. I could offer you a bed, and I should consider it an honour. I have not much to show you, but such two or three curiosities as I have got, you might like to look over, and I am fond of a bit of garden and a summer-house." I said I should be delighted to accept his hospitality. "'Thank ye,' said he. "'Then we'll consider that it's to come off, when convenient to you. Have you dined with Mr. Jaggers yet?' "'Not yet.' "'Well,' said Wemmick. He'll give you wine and good wine. I'll give you punch, and not bad punch. And now I'll tell you something. When you go to dine with Mr. Jaggers, look at his housekeeper. Shall I see something very uncommon? Well, said Wemmick, you see a wild beast tamed. Not so very uncommon, you'll tell me. I reply, that depends on the original wildness of the beast and the amount of taming. It won't lower your opinion of Mr. Jaggers's powers. Keep your eye on it." I told him I would do so, with all the interest and curiosity that his preparation awakened. As I was taking my departure, he asked me if I would like to devote five minutes to seeing Mr. Jaggers at it. For several reasons, and not least because I didn't clearly know what Mr. Jaggers would be found to be at, I replied in the affirmative. We dived into the city, and came up in a crowded police-court, where a blood-relation, in the murderous sense, of the deceased, with the fanciful taste in brooches, was standing at the bar, uncomfortably chewing something, while my guardian had a woman under examination, or cross-examination, I don't know which, and was striking her, and the bench, and everybody present, with awe. If anybody, of whatsoever degree, said a word that he didn't approve of, he instantly required to have it taken down. If anybody wouldn't make an admission, he said, I'll have it out of you. And if anybody made an admission, he said, Now I have got you. The magistrates shivered under a single bite of his finger. Thieves and thief-takers hung in dread rapture on his words, and shrank when a hair of his eyebrows turned in their direction. 
Which side he was on, I couldn't make out, for he seemed to me to be grinding the whole place in a mill. I only know that when I stole out on tiptoe, he was not on the side of the bench, for he was making the legs of the old gentleman who presided, quite convulsive under the table, by his denunciations of his conduct as a representative of British law and justice in that chair that day. End of chapter 24 Chapter 25 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 25 Bentley Drummle, who was so sulky a fellow, that he even took up a book as if its writer had done him an injury, did not take up an acquaintance in a more agreeable spirit. Heavy in figure, movement, and comprehension, in the sluggish complexion of his face, and in the large awkward tongue that seemed to loll about in his mouth, as he himself lolled about in a room, he was idle, proud, niggardly, reserved, and suspicious. He came of rich people down in Somersetshire, who had nursed this combination of qualities, until they made the discovery that it was just of age and a blockhead. Thus, Bentley Drummle had come to Mr. Pocket when he was a head taller than that gentleman, and half a dozen heads thicker than most gentlemen. Startop had been spoilt by a weak mother, and kept at home when he ought to have been at school. But he was devotedly attached to her, and admired her beyond measure. He had a woman's delicacy of feature, and was— "'As you may see, though you never saw her,' said Herbert to me, exactly like his mother. It was but natural that I should take to him much more kindly than to Drummle, and that, even in the earliest evenings of our boating, he and I should pull homeward abreast of one another, conversing from boat to boat, while Bentley Drummle came up in our wake alone, under the overhanging banks and among the rushes. He would always creep in shore, like some uncomfortable amphibious creature, even when the tide would have sent him fast upon his way, and I always think of him as coming after us in the dark, or by the backwater, when our own two boats were breaking the sunset or the moonlight in midstream. Herbert was my intimate companion and friend. I presented him with a half-share in my boat, which was the occasion of his often coming down to Hammersmith and my possession of a half-share in his chambers often took me up to London. We used to walk between the two places at all hours. I have an affection for the road yet, though it is not so pleasant a road as it was then, formed in the impressibility of untried youth and hope. When I had been in Mr. Pocket's family a month or two, Mr. and Mrs. Camilla turned up. Camilla was Mr. Pocket's sister. Georgiana, whom I had seen at Miss Havisham's on the same occasion, also turned up. She was a cousin, an indigestive single woman, who called her rigidity religion, and her liver love. These people hated me with the hatred of cupidity and disappointment. As a matter of course, they fawned upon me in my prosperity, with the basest meanness. Towards Mr. Pocket, as a grown-up infant, with no notion of his own interests, they showed the complacent forbearance I had heard them express. Mrs. Pocket they held in contempt, but they allowed the poor soul to have been heavily disappointed in life, because that shed a feeble reflected light upon themselves. These were the surroundings among which I settled down, and applied myself to my education. 
I soon contracted expensive habits, and began to spend an amount of money that within a few short months I should have thought almost fabulous, but through good and evil I stuck to my books. There was no other merit in this than my having sense enough to feel my deficiencies. Between Mr. Pocket and Herbert I got on fast, and, with one or the other, always at my elbow to give me the start I wanted, and clear obstructions out of my road. I must have been as great a dolt as Drummle if I had done less. I had not seen Mr. Wemmick for some weeks, when I thought I would write him a note, and propose to go home with him on a certain evening. He replied that it would give him much pleasure, and that he would expect me at the office at six o'clock. Thither I went, and there I found him, putting the key of his safe down his back as the clock struck. "'Did you think of walking down to Walworth?' said he. "'Certainly,' said I. "'If you approve.' "'Very much.' was Mr. Wemmick's reply. "'For I have had my legs under the desk all day, and should be glad to stretch them. Now, I'll tell you what I've got for supper, Mr. Pip. I've got a stewed steak, which is of home preparation, and a cold roast fowl, which is from the cook's shop. I think it's tender, because the master of the shop was a juryman in some cases of ours the other day, and we let him down easy. I reminded him of it when I bought the fowl, and I said, "'Pick us out a good one, old Briton, because if we had chosen to keep you in the box another day or two, we could easily have done it.' He said to that, "'Let me make you a present of the best fowl in the shop.' I let him, of course. As far as it goes, it's property and portable. You don't object to an aged parent, I hope.' I really thought he was still speaking of the fowl, until he added, "'Because I've got an aged parent at my place.' I then said what politeness required. "'So, you haven't dined with Mr. Jaggers yet?' he pursued, as we walked along. "'Not yet.' "'He told me so this afternoon when he heard you were coming. I expect you'll have an invitation to-morrow. He's going to ask your pals, too. Three of them, ain't there?' Although I was not in the habit of counting Drummle as one of my intimate associates, I answered, "'Yes.' "'Well,' He's going to ask the whole gang. I hardly felt complimented by the word. And whatever he gives you, he'll give you good. Don't look forward to variety, but you'll have excellence. And there's another rum thing in his house," proceeded Wemmick, after a moment's pause, as if the remark followed on the housekeeper understood. He never lets a door or window be fastened at night. Is he never robbed? That's it," returned Wemmick. He says, and gives it out publicly, I want to see the man who robbed me. Lord bless you, I've heard him a hundred times if I've heard him once, say to regular cracksman in our front office. You know where I live. Now, no bolt is ever drawn there. Why don't you do a stroke of business with me? Come, can't I tempt you? Not a man of them, sir would be bold enough to try it on, for love or money." "'They dread him so much,' said I. "'Dread him?' said Wemmick. "'I believe you they dread him. Not but what he's artful, even in his defiance of them. No silver, sir. Britannia metal, every spoon.' "'So they wouldn't have much,' I observed. 
even if they— Ah, but he would have much, said Wemmick, cutting me short. And they know it. He'd have their lives, and the lives of scores of them. He'd have all he could get, and it's impossible to say what he couldn't get, if he gave his mind to it. I was falling into meditation on my guardian's greatness, when Wemmick remarked, "'As to the absence of plate, that's only his natural depth, you know. A river's its natural depth, and ease is natural depth. Look at his watch-chain. That's real enough.' "'It's very massive,' said I. "'Massive?' repeated Wemmick. Oh, "'I think so. And his watch is a gold repeater.' and worth a hundred pound if it's worth a penny. Mr. Pip, there are about seven hundred thieves in this town who know all about that watch. There's not a man, a woman, or a child among them who wouldn't identify the smallest link in that chain, and drop it as if it was red-hot if inveigled into touching it. At first, with such discourse, and afterwards with conversation of a more general nature, did Mr. Wemmick and I beguile the time and the road, until he gave me to understand that we had arrived in the district of Walworth. It appeared to be a collection of back lanes, ditches, and little gardens, and to present the aspect of a rather dull retirement. Wemmick's house was a little wooden cottage in the midst of plots of garden, and the top of it was cut out, and painted like a battery mounted with guns. "'My own doing,' said Wemmick, Looks pretty, don't it? I highly commended it. I think it was the smallest house I ever saw, with the queerest Gothic windows, by far the greater part of them sham, and a Gothic door, almost too small to get in at. That's a real flagstaff, you see, said Wemmick. And on Sundays I run up a real flag. Then look here. After I've crossed this bridge, I hoist it up, so, and cut off the communication. The bridge was a plank, and it crossed a chasm about four feet wide and two deep. But it was very pleasant to see the pride with which he hoisted it up and made it fast, smiling as he did so, with a relish, and not merely mechanically. "'At nine o'clock every night, Greenwich time,' said Wemmick, "'the gun fires. There he is, you see. And when you hear him go, I think you will say he's a stinger.' The piece of ordnance referred to was mounted in a separate fortress constructed of lattice-work. It was protected from the weather by an ingenious little tarpaulin contrivance in the nature of an umbrella. "'Then at the back,' said Wemmick, "'out of sight, so as not to impede the idea of fortifications, for it's a principle with me, if you have an idea, carry it out and keep it up. I don't know whether that's your opinion.' I said, decidedly. At the back there's a pig, and there are fowls and rabbits. Then I knock together my own little frame, you see, and grow cucumbers, and you'll judge at supper what sort of a salad I can raise. So, sir, said Wemmick, smiling again, but seriously, too, as he shook his head, if you can suppose a little place besieged, it would hold out a devil of a time in point of provisions. Then he conducted me to a bower, about a dozen yards off, but which was approached by such ingenious twists of path that it took quite a long time to get at. And in this retreat our glasses were already set forth, 
our punch was cooling in an ornamental lake, on whose margin the bow was raised. This piece of water, with an island in the middle, which might have been the salad for supper, was of a circular form, and he had constructed a fountain in it, which, when you set a little mill going, and took a cork out of a pipe, played to that powerful extent that it made the back of your hand quite wet. "'I am my own engineer, and my own carpenter, and my own plumber, and my own gardener, and my own jack-of-all trades,' said Wemmick, in acknowledging my compliments. "'Well, it's a good thing, you know. It brushes the new great cobwebs away, and pleases the aged. You wouldn't mind being at once introduced to the aged, would you? It wouldn't put you out.' I expressed the readiness I felt, and we went into the castle. There we found, sitting by a fire, a very old man in a flannel coat, clean, cheerful, comfortable, and well cared for, but intensely deaf. "'Well, aged parent,' said Wemmick, shaking hands with him in a cordial and jocose way, "'how am you?' "'All right, John, all right,' replied the old man. "'Here's Mr. Pip, aged parent.' said Wemmick, and I wish you could hear his name. Nod away at him, Mr. Pip, that's what he likes. Nod away at him, if you please, like winking. "'This is a fine place of my son's, sir,' cried the old man, while I nodded as hard as I possibly could. "'This is a pretty pleasure-ground, sir. This spot, and these beautiful works upon it, ought to be kept together by the nation, after my son's time, for the people's enjoyment. "'You're as proud of it as Punch, ain't you, aged?' said Wemmick, contemplating the old man with his hard face really softened. "'There's a nod for you,' giving him a tremendous one. "'There's another for you,' giving him a still more tremendous one. "'You like that, don't you? "'If you're not tired, Mr. Pip, though, "'I know it's tiring to strangers. "'Will you tip him one more? "'You can't think how it pleases him.' "'I tipped him several more, "'and he was in great spirits. "'We left him bestirring himself to feed the fowls, "'and we sat down to our punch in the arbour, "'where Wemmick told me, as he smoked a pipe, "'that it had taken him a good many years "'to bring the property up to its present pitch of perfection. "'Is it your own, Mr. Wemmick?' "'Oh, yes,' said Wemmick. "'I've got hold of it, a bit at time. "'It's a freehold by George.' "'Is it indeed? "'I hope Mr. Jaggers admires it.' "'Never seen it,' said Wemmick. "'Never heard of it. "'Never seen the aged. "'Never heard of him. "'No, the office is one thing, "'and private life is another. "'When I go into the office, "'I leave the castle behind me. "'and when I come into the castle, I'll leave the office behind me. "'If it's not in any way disagreeable to you, "'you'll oblige me by doing the same. "'I don't wish it professionally spoken about.' "'Of course, I felt my good faith involved "'in the observance of his request. "'The punch being very nice, "'we sat there drinking it and talking "'until it was almost nine o'clock. "'Getting near gunfire,' said Wemmick. "'Then, as he laid down his pipe, "'It's the aged's treat.' Proceeding into the castle again, we found the aged heating the poker, with expectant eyes, as a preliminary to the performance of this great nightly ceremony. Wemmick stood with his watch in his hand, 
until the moment was come for him to take the red-hot poker from the aged, and repair to the battery. He took it, and went out, and presently the stinger went off with a bang that shook the crazy little box of a cottage, as if it must fall to pieces, and made every glass and teacup in it ring. Upon this, the aged, who I believe would have been blown out of his armchair, but for holding on by the elbows, cried out exultingly, "'He's fired! I heard him!' And I nodded at the old gentleman, until it is no frig of speech to declare that I absolutely could not see him. The interval between that time and supper, Wemmick devoted to showing me his collection of curiosities. They were mostly of a felonious character, comprising the pen with which a celebrated forgery had been committed, a distinguished razor or two, some locks of hair, and several manuscript confessions written under condemnation, upon which Mr. Wemmick set particular value as being, to use his own words, "'Every one of em lies, sir.' These were agreeably dispersed among small specimens of china and glass, various neat trifles made by the proprietor of the museum, and some tobacco-stoppers carved by the aged. They were all displayed in that chamber of the castle into which I had been first inducted, and which served, not only as the general sitting-room, but as the kitchen too, if I might judge from a saucepan on the hob, and a brazen bijou over the fireplace, designed for the suspension of a roasting-jack. There was a neat little girl in attendance, who looked after the aged in the day. When she had laid the supper-cloth, the bridge was lowered to give her means of egress, and she withdrew for the night. The supper was excellent, and though the castle was rather subject to dry rot, insomuch that it tasted like a bad nut, and though the pig might have been farther off, I was heartily pleased with my whole entertainment. Nor was there any drawback on my little turret-bedroom, beyond there being such a very thin ceiling between me and the flagstaff, that when I lay down on my back in bed, it seemed as if I had to balance that pole on my forehead all night. Wemmick was up early in the morning, and I am afraid I heard him cleaning my boots. After that, he fell to gardening, and I saw him from my gothic window, pretending to employ the aged, and nodding at him in a most devoted manner. Our breakfast was as good as the supper, and at half-past eight precisely, we started for Little Britain. By degrees, Wemmick got drier and harder as we went along, and his mouth tightened into a post-office again. At last, when we got to his place of business, and he pulled out his key from his coat-collar, he looked as unconscious of his Walworth property, as if the castle, and the drawbridge, and the arbour, and the lake, and the fountain, and the aged, had all been blown into space together by the last discharge of the stinger. End of chapter 25 Chapter 26 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 26 It fell out, as Wemmick had told me it would, that I had an early opportunity of comparing my guardian's establishment with that of his cashier and clerk. My guardian was in his room, washing his hands with his scented soap, when I went into the office from Walworth, and he called me to him, and gave me the invitation for myself and friends, which Wemmick had prepared me to receive. "'No ceremony,' he stipulated, "'and no dinner-dress, and say, to-morrow.' 
I asked him where we should come to, for I had no idea where he lived, and I believed it was in his general objection to make anything like an admission, that he replied, "'Come here, and I'll take you home with me.' I embraced this opportunity of remarking that he washed his clients off, as if he were a surgeon or a dentist. He had a closet in his room, fitted up for the purpose, which smelt of the scented soap, like a perfumer's shop. It had an unusually large jack-towel on a roller inside the door, and he would wash his hands, and wipe them, and dry them all over this towel, whenever he came in from a police court, or dismissed a client from his room. When I and my friends repaired to him at six o'clock next day, he seemed to have been engaged on a case of darker complexion than usual, for we found him, with his head buttered into this closet, not only washing his hands, but laving his face and gargling his throat. And even when he had done all that, and had gone all round the jack-towel, he took out his penknife, and scraped the case out of his nails, before he put his coat on. There were some people slinking about as usual, when we passed out into the street, who were evidently anxious to speak with him. But there was something so conclusive in the halo of scented soap which encircled his presence, that they gave it up for that day. As we walked along westward, he was recognised ever and again by some face in the crowd of the streets, and whenever that happened, he talked louder to me, but he never otherwise recognised anybody, or took notice that anybody recognised him. He conducted us to Gerard Street, Soho, to a house on the south side of that street. Rather a stately house of its kind, but dolefully in want of painting, and with dirty windows. He took out his key and opened the door and we all went into a stone hall, bare, gloomy, and little used. So, up a dark brown staircase, into a series of three dark brown rooms on the first floor. There were carved garlands on the panelled walls, and as he stood among them, giving us welcome, I know what kind of loops I thought they looked like. Dinner was laid in the best of these rooms. The second was his dressing-room, the third his bedroom. He told us that he held the whole house, but rarely used more of it than we saw. The table was comfortably laid, no silver in the service, of course, and at the side of his chair was a capacious dumb-waiter, with a variety of bottles and decanters on it, and four dishes of fruit for dessert. I noticed throughout that he kept everything under his own hand, and distributed everything himself. There was a bookcase in the room. I saw from the backs of the books that they were about evidence, criminal law, criminal biography, trials, acts of Parliament, and such things. The furniture was all very solid and good, like his watch-chain. It had an official look, however, and there was nothing merely ornamental to be seen. In a corner was a little table of papers with a shaded lamp, so that he seemed to bring the office home with him in that respect too, and to wheel it out of an evening, and fall to work. As he had scarcely seen my three companions until now, for he and I had walked together, he stood on the hearth-rug, after ringing the bell, and took a searching look at them. To my surprise, he seemed at once to be principally, if not solely, interested in Drummle. "'Pip!' said he, putting his large hand on my shoulder and moving me to the window. "'I don't know one from the other. Who's the spider?' "'The spider?' said I. "'The blotchy, sprawly, sulky fellow.' 
"'That's Bentley Drummle,' I replied. "'The one with the delicate face is Startop.' Not making the least account of the one with the delicate face, he returned, "'Bentley Drummle is his name, is it? Hm. I like the look of that fellow.' He immediately began to talk to Drummle. Not at all deterred by his replying in his heavy, reticent way, but apparently led on by it to screw discourse out of him. I was looking at the two, when there came between me and them the housekeeper, with the first dish for the table. She was a woman of about forty, I suppose, but I may have thought her younger than she was, rather tall, of a lithe, nimble figure, extremely pale, with large faded eyes and a quantity of streaming hair. I cannot say whether any diseased affection of the heart caused her lips to be parted, as if you were panting, and her face to bear a curious expression of suddenness and flutter, but I know that I had been to see Macbeth at the theatre a night or two before, and that her face looked to me as if it were all disturbed by fiery air, like the faces I had seen rise out of the witch's cauldron. She set the dish on touched my guardian quietly on the arm with a finger to notify that dinner was ready, and vanished. We took our seats at the round table, and my guardian kept Drummle on one side of him, while Startop sat on the other. It was a noble dish of fish that the housekeeper had put on table, and we had a joint of equally choice mutton afterwards, and then an equally choice bird. Sauces, wines, all the accessories we wanted, and all of the best, were given out by our host from his dumb-waiter, and when they had made the circuit of the table, he always put them back again. Similarly, he dealt us clean plates and knives and forks for each course, and dropped those just disused into two baskets on the ground by his chair. No other attendant than the housekeeper appeared. She sat on every dish, and I always saw in her face a face rising out of the cauldron. Years afterwards, I made a dreadful likeness of that woman, by causing a face that had no other natural resemblance to it than it derived from flowing hair, to pass behind a bowl of flaming spirits in a dark room. Induced to take particular notice of the housekeeper, both by her own striking appearance and by Wemmick's preparation, I observed that whenever she was in the room, she kept her eyes attentively on my guardian, and that she would remove her hands from any dish she put before him, hesitatingly as if she dreaded his calling her back, and wanted him to speak when she was nigh, if he had anything to say. I fancy that I could detect in his manner a consciousness of this, and a purpose always holding her in suspense. Dinner went off gaily, and, although my guardian seemed to follow rather than originate subjects, I knew that he wrenched the weakest part of our dispositions out of us. For myself, I found that I was expressing my tendency to lavish expenditure, and to patronise Herbert, and to boast of my great prospects, before I quite knew that I had opened my lips. It was so with all of us. But with no one more than Drummle, the development of whose inclination to gird in a grudging and suspicious way at the rest was screwed out of him before the fish was taken off. It was not then, but when we had got to the cheese, that our conversation turned upon our rowing feats, and that Drummle was rallied for coming up behind of a night in that slow, amphibious way of his. Drummle, upon this, informed our host that he much preferred our room to our company, 
and that as to skill, he was more than our master, and that as to strength, he could scatter us like chaff. By some invisible agency, my guardian wound him up to a pitch little short of ferocity about this trifle, and he fell to bearing and spanning his arm to show how muscular it was, and we all fell to bearing and spanning our arms in a ridiculous manner. Now the housekeeper was at that time clearing the table. My guardian, taking no heed of her, but with the side of his face turned from her, was leaning back in his chair, biting the side of his forefinger, and showing an interest in Drumble that to me was quite inexplicable. Suddenly he clapped his large hand on the housekeeper's, like a trap, as she stretched it across the table. So suddenly and smartly did he do this, that we all stopped in our foolish contention. "'If you talk of strength,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'I'll show you a wrist. Molly, let them see your wrist.' Her entrapped hand was on the table, but she had already put her other hand behind her waist. "'Master,' she said in a low voice, with her eyes attentively and entreatingly fixed upon him, "'Don't! I'll show you a wrist,' repeated Mr. Jaggers with an immovable determination to show it. "'Molly, let them see your wrist.' "'Master,' she again murmured, "'please!' "'Molly,' said Mr. Jaggers, not looking at her, but obstinately looking at the opposite side of the room, "'let them see both your wrists. Show them. Come!' He took his hand from hers, and turned that wrist up on the table. She brought her other hand from behind her, and held the two out, side by side. The last wrist was much disfigured, deeply scarred, and scarred, across and across. When she held her hands out, she took her eyes from Mr. Jaggers, and turned them watchfully on every one of the rest of us in succession. "'There's power here,' said Mr. Jaggers, coolly tracing out the sinews with his forefinger. Very few men have the power of wrist that this woman has. It's remarkable what mere force of grip there is in these hands. I have had occasion to notice many hands, but I never saw stronger in that respect, man's or woman's, than these." While he said these words, in a leisurely, critical style, she continued to look at every one of us in regular succession as we sat. The moment he ceased, she looked at him again. "'That'll do, Molly,' said Mr. Jaggers, giving her a slight nod. "'You have been admired, and can go.' She withdrew her hands, and went out of the room, and Mr. Jaggers, putting the decanters on from his dumb-waiter, filled his glass, and passed round the wine. "'At half-past nine, gentlemen,' said he, "'we must break up.' Pray make the best use of your time. I am glad to see you all. Mr. Drummle, I drink to you." If his object in singling out Drummle were to bring him out still more, it perfectly succeeded. In a sulky triumph, Drummle showed his morose depreciation of the rest of us, in a more and more offensive degree, until he became downright intolerable. Through all his stages, Mr. Jaggers followed him with the same strange interest. He actually seemed to serve as a zest to Mr. Jaggers' wine. 
in our boyish want of discretion, I dare say we took too much to drink, and I know we talked too much. We became particularly hot upon some boorish sneer of Drummle's, to the effect that we were too free with our money. It led to my remarking, with more zeal than discretion, that it came with a bad grace from him, to whom Startup had lent money in my presence but a week or so before. "'Well,' retorted Drummle, "'he'll be paid.' "'I don't mean to imply that he won't,' said I. "'But it might make you hold your tongue about us and our money, I should think.' "'You should think,' retorted Drummle. "'Oh, Lord!' "'I dare say,' I went on, meaning to be very severe, "'that you wouldn't lend money to any of us if we wanted it.' "'You are right,' said Drummle. "'I wouldn't lend one of you a sixpence. "'I wouldn't lend anybody a sixpence. "'Rather mean to borrow under those circumstances, I should say.' "'You should say,' repeated Drummle. "'Oh, Lord!' "'This was so very aggravating, "'the more especially as I found myself making no way against his surly obtuseness, "'that I said—' disregarding Herbert's efforts to check me. "'Come, Mr. Drummle, since we're on the subject, I'll tell you what passed between Herbert here and me when you borrowed that money.' "'I don't want to know what passed between Herbert there and you,' growled Drummle. And I think he added in a lower growl that we might both go to the devil and shake ourselves. "'I'll tell you, however,' said I, "'whether you want to know or not.' We said that as you put it in your pocket, very glad to get it, you seemed to be immensely amused at his being so weak as to lend it. Drummle laughed outright, and sat laughing in our faces, with his hands in his pockets, and his round shoulders raised, plainly signifying that it was quite true, and that he despised us as asses all. Hereupon, Startop took him in hand, though with a much better grace than I had shown, and exhorted him to be a little more agreeable. Startop being a lively, bright young fellow, and Drummle being the exact opposite, the latter was always disposed to resent him as a direct personal affront. He now retorted in a coarse, lumpish way, and Startop tried to turn the discussion aside with some small pleasantry that made us all laugh. Resenting this little success more than anything, Drummle, without any threat or warning, pulled his hands out of his pockets, dropped his round shoulders, swore, took up a large glass, and would have flung it at his adversary's head, but for our entertainers dexterously seizing it at the instant when it was raised for that purpose. "'Gentlemen,' said Mr. Jaggers, deliberately putting down the glass, and hauling out his gold repeater by its massive chain, "'I am exceedingly sorry to announce that it's half-past nine. On this hint, we all rose to depart. Before we got to the street door, Startop was cheerily calling Drummle, "'Old boy!' as if nothing had happened. But the old boy was so far from responding that he would not even walk to Hammersmith on the same side of the way. So Herbert and I, who remained in town, saw them going down the street on opposite sides, Startop leading, and Drummle lagging behind in the shadow of the houses, much as he was wont to follow in his boat. As the door was not yet shut, I thought I would leave Herbert there for a moment, and run upstairs again to say a word to my guardian. 
I found him in his dressing-room, surrounded by his stock of boots, already hard at it, washing his hands of us. I told him I had come up again to say how sorry I was that anything disagreeable should have occurred, and that I hoped he would not blame me too much. Poof! said he, sluicing his face and speaking through the water-drops. "'It's nothing, Pip. I like that spider, though.' He had turned towards me now, and was shaking his head, and blowing and toweling himself. "'I'm glad you like him, sir,' said I. "'But I don't.' "'No, no,' my guardian assented. "'Don't have too much to do with him. Keep as clear of him as you can. But I like the fellow, Pip. He is one of the true sort.' "'Why, if I was a fortune-teller—looking out of the towel, he caught my eye. "'But I am not a fortune-teller,' he said, letting his head drop into a festoon of towel, and toweling away at his two ears. "'You know what I am, don't you? Good night, Pip. Good night, sir.' In about a month after that, the spider's time with Mr. Pocket was up for good, and, to the great relief of all the house, but Mrs. Pocket, he went home to the family hole. End of chapter twenty six. Chapter twenty seven of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty seven. My dear Mr. Pip. I write this by request of Mr. Gargory, for to let you know that he is going to London in company with Mr. Wopsle, and would be glad, if agreeable, to be allowed to see you. He would call at Barnard's Hotel Tuesday morning, nine o'clock, when, if not agreeable, please leave word. Your poor sister is much the same as when you left. We talk of you in the kitchen every night, and wonder what you are saying and doing. If now considered in the light of a liberty, excuse it for the love of poor old days. No more, dear Mr. Pip, from your ever obliged and affectionate servant, Biddy. P.S. He wishes me most particular to write what larks. He says you will understand. I hope, and do not doubt, it will be agreeable to see him, even though a gentleman, for you had ever a good heart, and he is a worthy, worthy man. I have read him all, excepting only the last little sentence, and he wishes me most particular to write again what locks. I received this letter by the post on Monday morning, and therefore its appointment was for next day. Let me confess exactly with what feelings I looked forward to Joe's coming. Not with pleasure, though I was bound to him by so many ties. No. With considerable disturbance, some mortification, and a keen sense of incongruity. If I could have kept him away by paying money, I certainly would have paid money. My greatest reassurance was that he was coming to Barnard's Inn, not to Hammersmith, and, consequently, would not fall in Bentley Drummle's way. I had little objection to his being seen by Herbert, or his father, 
for both of whom I had a respect. But I had the sharpest sensitiveness as to his being seen by Drummle, whom I held in contempt. So, throughout life, our worst weaknesses and meannesses are usually committed for the sake of the people whom we most despise. I had begun to be always decorating the chambers in some quite unnecessary and inappropriate way or other, and very expensive those wrestles with Barnard proved to be. By this time the rooms were vastly different from what I had found them, and I enjoyed the honour of occupying a few prominent pages in the books of a neighbouring upholsterer. I had got on so fast of late that I had even started a boy in boots, top boots, in bondage and slavery to whom I might have been said to pass my days. For after I had made the monster, out of the refuse of my washerwoman's family, and had clothed him with a blue coat, canary waistcoat, white cravat, creamy breeches, and the boots already mentioned, I had to find him a little to do and a great deal to eat, and with both of those horrible requirements he haunted my existence. This avenging phantom was ordered to be on duty at eight on Tuesday morning in the hall. It was two feet square, as charged for forecloth, and Herbert suggested certain things for breakfast that he thought Joe would like. While I felt sincerely obliged to him for being so interested and considerate, I had an odd, half-provoked sense of suspicion upon me that if Joe had been coming to see him, he wouldn't have been quite so brisk about it. However, I came into town on Monday night to be ready for Joe, and I got up early in the morning, and caused the sitting-room and breakfast-table to assume their most splendid appearance. Unfortunately, the morning was drizzly, and an angel could not have concealed the fact that Barnard was shedding sooty tears outside the window, like some weak giant of a sweep. As the time approached, I should have liked to run away. But the avenger, pursuant to orders, was in the hall, and presently I heard Joe on the staircase. I knew it was Joe, by his clumsy manner of coming upstairs, his state boots being always too big for him and by the time it took him to read the names on the other floors in the course of his ascent. When at last he stopped outside our door, I could hear his finger tracing over the painted letters of my name, and I afterwards distinctly heard him breathing in at the keyhole. Finally he gave a faint single rap, and Pepper, such was the compromising name of the avenging boy, announced, "'Mr. Gorgory!' I thought he never would have done wiping his feet, and that I must have gone out to lift him off the mat. But at last he came in. "'Joe! How are you, Joe?' "'Pip! How are you, Pip?' With his good honest face all glowing and shining, and his hat put down on the floor between us, he caught both my hands and worked them straight up and down, as if I had been the last patented pump. "'I am glad to see you, Joe. Give me your hat.' But Joe, taking it up carefully with both hands, like a bird's nest with eggs in it, wouldn't hear of parting with that piece of property, and persisted in standing talking over it in a most uncomfortable way. "'Which you have that growed,' said Joe, "'and that swelled, and that gentle-folked.' Joe considered a little before he discovered this word. "'As to be sure, you are a honour to your king and country.' 
"'And you, Joe, look wonderfully well.' "'Thank God,' said Joe. "'I'm aggravable to most. "'And your sister, she's no worse than she were. "'And Biddy, she's ever right and ready. "'And all friends is no backerder, if not no forerder. "'Sutton Wopsle, he's had a drop.' All this time, still with both hands taking great care of the bird's nest, Joe was rolling his eyes round and round the room, and round and round the flowered pattern of my dressing-gown. "'Had a drop, Joe?' "'Why, yes,' said Joe, lowering his voice. "'He's left the church, and went into the play-acting, which the play-acting have likewise brought him to London along with me. "'And his wish were,' said Joe, getting the bird's nest under his left arm for the moment, and groping in it for an egg with his right, if no offence, as I would, and you that. I took what Joe gave me, and found it to be the crumpled playbill of a small metropolitan theatre, announcing the first appearance in that very week of the celebrated provincial amateur of Roskin Renown, whose unique performance in the highest tragic walk of our national bard has lately occasioned so great a sensation in local dramatic circles. "'Were you at his performance, Joe?' I inquired. "'I were,' said Joe, with emphasis and solemnity. "'Was there a great sensation?' "'Why?' said Joe. "'Yes, there certainly were a peck of orange peel, particular when he see the ghost, though I put it to yourself, sir.' whether it were calculated to keep a man up to his work with a good heart, to be continually cutting in betwixt him and the ghost with Amen. A man may have had a misfortune, and been in the church," said Joe, lowering his voice to an argumentative and feeling tone, "'but that is no reason why you should put him out at such a time. Which I mean to say, if the ghost of a man's own father can it be allowed to claim his attention? What can, sir? Still more, when his mourning hat is unfortunately made so small as that the weight of the black feathers brings it off, try to keep it on how you may." A ghost-seeing effect in Joe's own countenance informed me that Herbert had entered the room. So I presented Joe to Herbert, who held out his hand, but Joe backed from it and held on by the bird's nest. "'Your servant, sir,' said Joe, "'which I hope, as you and Pip—' Here his eye fell on the Avenger, who was putting some toast on table, and so plainly denoted an intention to make that young gentleman one of the family, that I frowned it down, and confused him more. "'I mean to say, you two gentlemen, which I hope as you get your else in this close spot. For the present—' "'May be a very good inn, according to London opinions,' said Joe, confidentially, "'and I believe his character do stand I. But I wouldn't keep a pig in it myself. Not in the case that I wish him to fatten wholesome, and to eat with a mellow flavour on him.' Having borne this flattering testimony to the merits of our dwelling-place, and having incidentally shown his tendency to call me Sir, Joe, being invited to sit down to table, looked all around the room for a suitable spot on which to deposit his hat. 
as if it were only on some very few rare substances in nature that it could find a resting-place, and ultimately stood it on an extreme corner of the chimney-piece, from which it ever afterwards fell off at intervals. "'Do you take tea or coffee, Mr. Gargery?' asked Herbert, who always presided of a morning. "'Thank ye, sir,' said Joe, stiff from head to foot. "'I'll take whichever is most agreeable to yourself.' "'And what do you say to coffee?' "'Thank ye, sir,' returned Joe, evidently dispirited by the proposal. "'Since you are so kind as make choice of coffee, I will not run contrary to your opinions. But don't you never find it a little eating?' "'Say tea, then,' said Herbert, pouring it out. Here Joe's hat tumbled off the mantelpiece and he started out of his chair, and picked it up, and fitted it to the same exact spot, as if it were an absolute point of good breeding that it should tumble off again soon. "'When did you come to town, Mr. Gargery?' "'Were it yesterday afternoon?' said Joe, after coughing behind his hand, as if he had had time to catch the whooping-cough since he came. "'No, it were not. Yes, it were. Yes.' It were yesterday afternoon, with an appearance of mingled wisdom, relief, and strict impartiality. "'Have you seen anything of London yet?' "'Why, yes, sir,' said Joe. "'Me and Wopsle went off straight to look at the black and wear us. But we didn't find that it come up to its likeness in the red bills of the shop-doors, which I meet her say,' added Joe, in an explanatory manner, as it is there drawed to architectural. I really believe Joe would have prolonged this word, mightily expressive to my mind of some architecture that I know, into a perfect chorus, but for his attention being providentially attracted by his hat, which was toppling. Indeed, it demanded from him a constant attention, and a quickness of eye and hand, very like that exacted by wicket-keeping. He made extraordinary play with it and showed the greatest skill, now rushing at it and catching it neatly as it dropped, now merely stopping it midway, beating it up, and humouring it in various parts of the room, and against a good deal of the pattern of the paper on the wall, before he felt it safe to close with it, finally splashing it into the slop-basin, where I took the liberty of laying hands upon it. As to his shirt-collar and his coat-collar, they were perplexing to reflect upon insoluble mysteries both. Why should a man scrape himself to that extent, before he could consider himself full-dressed? Why should he suppose it necessary to be purified by suffering for his holiday clothes? Then he fell into such unaccountable fits of meditation, with his fork midway between his plate and his mouth, had his eyes attracted in such strange directions, was afflicted with such remarkable coughs, sat so far from the table, and dropped so much more than he ate, and pretended that he hadn't dropped it, that I was heartily glad when Herbert left us for the city. I had neither the good sense nor the good feeling to know that this was all my fault, and that if I had been easier with Joe, Joe would have been easier with me. I felt impatient of him, and out of temper with him, in which condition he heaped coals of fire on my head. "'Us two be now alone, sir?' began Joe. Joe, I interrupted pettishly, 
How can you call me sir?' Joe looked at me for a single instant, with something faintly like reproach. Utterly preposterous as his cravat was, and as his collars were, I was conscious of a sort of dignity in the look. "'Us two being now alone,' resumed Joe, "'and me having the intentions and abilities to stay not many minutes more, I will now conclude, leastways begin, to mention what have led to my having had the present honour. For was it not,' said Joe, with his old air of lucid exposition, "'that my only wish were to be useful to you, I should not have had the honour of breaking whittles in the company and abode of gentlemen.' I was so unwilling to see the look again, that I made no remonstrance against its tone. "'Well, sir,' pursued Joe, "'this is how it were. I were at the bargeman t'other night, Pip.' Whenever he subsided into affection, he called me Pip, and whenever he relapsed into politeness, he called me Sir. "'When there come up in his shay-cart, Pumblechook, which that same identical,' said Joe, going down a new track, "'do comb my hair the wrong way sometimes, awful, by giving out up and down town, as it were him, which ever had your infant companionation, and were looked upon as a playfellow by yourself.' "'Nonsense! It was you, Joe.' "'Which I fully believe it were, Pip,' said Joe, slightly tossing his head. "'Though it signify little now, sir. Well, Pip, this same identical, which his manners is given to blusterous, come to me at the bargeman. What a pipe, and a pint of beer, do give refreshment to the working man, sir, and do not overstimulate. And his word were, Joseph, Miss Havisham, she wished to speak to you. Miss Havisham, Joe? She wish, were Pumblechook's word, to speak to you. Joe sat and rolled his eyes at the ceiling. "'Yes, Joe. Go on, please.' "'Next day, sir,' said Joe, looking at me as if I were a long way off. "'Having cleaned myself, I go and I see Miss A.' "'Miss A, Joe? Miss Havisham?' "'Which I say, sir,' replied Joe, with an air of legal formality, as if he were making his will. "'Miss A, or otherwise Havisham?' Her expression air then as following. Mr. Gargery, you air in correspondence with Mr. Pip? Having had a letter from you, I were able to say, I am. When I married your sister, sir, I said, I will. And when I answered your friend Pip, I said, I am. Would you tell him, then, said she, that which Estella has come home and would be glad to see him? I felt my face fire up as I looked at Joe. I hope one remote cause of its firing may have been my consciousness that if I had known his errand, I should have given him more encouragement. "'Biddy,' pursued Joe, "'when I got home, and asked her for to write the message to you, a little hung back. Biddy says, "'I know he will be very glad to have it by word of mouth. It is holiday time.' You want to see him? Go." "'I have now concluded, sir,' said Joe, rising from his chair. "'And, Pip, I wish you ever well, 
and ever prospering to a greater and greater height. "'But you're not going now, Joe?' "'Yes, I am,' said Joe. "'But you're coming back to dinner, Joe?' "'No, I am not,' said Joe. Our eyes met, and all the sir melted out of that manly heart as he gave me his hand. Pip, dear old chap, life is made of ever so many partings, welded together, as I might say, and one man's a blacksmith, and one's a whitesmith, and one's a goldsmith, and one's a coppersmith. Divisions among such must come, and must be met as they come. If there's been any fault at all to-day, it's mine. You and me is not two figures to beat together in London, nor yet anywheres else, but what is private, and be known, and understood among friends. It ain't that I'm proud, but that I want to be right, as you shall never see me no more in these clothes. I'm wrong in these clothes. I'm wrong out of the forge, the kitchen, or off of the meshes. You won't find half so much fault in me, if you think of me in my forge dress, with my hammer in my hand, or even my pipe. You won't find half so much fault in me, if, supposing as you should ever wish to see me, you come and put your head in at the forge window, and see Joe the blacksmith, there, at the old anvil, and the old burnt apron, sticking to the old work. I'm awful dull, but I hope I've beat out something nigh the rights of this at last. And so, God bless you, dear old Pip, old chap, God bless you. I had not been mistaken in my fancy that there was a simple dignity in him. The fashion of his dress could no more come in its way when he spoke these words, than it had come in its way in heaven. He touched me gently on the forehead, and went out. As soon as I could recover myself sufficiently, I hurried out after him, and looked for him in the neighbouring streets. But he was gone. End of chapter 27「It was clear that I must repair to our town next day, and in the first flow of my repentance it was equally clear that I must stay at Joe's. But when I had secured my box-place, by to-morrow's coach, and had been down to Mr. Pockets and back, I was not by any means convinced on the last point, and began to invent reasons, and make excuses, for putting up at the blue boar. I should be an inconvenience at Joe's. I was not expected, and my bed would not be ready. I should be too far from Miss Havisham's, and she was exacting and mightn't like it. All other swindlers upon earth are nothing to the self-swindlers, and with such pretences did I cheat myself. Surely a curious thing, that I should innocently take a bad half-crown of somebody else's manufacture, is reasonable enough, but that I should knowingly reckon the spurious coin of my own make as good money. An obliging stranger, under pretence of compactly folding up my bank-notes for security's sake, abstracts the notes and gives me nutshells. 
but what is his sleight of hand to mine, when I fold up my own nutshells and pass them on myself as notes? Having settled that I must go to the blue boar, my mind was much disturbed by indecision whether or not to take the avenger. It was tempting to think of that expensive mercenary publicly airing his boots in the archway of the blue boar's posting-yard. It was almost solemn to imagine him casually produced in the tailor's shop, and confounding the disrespectful senses of Trab's boy. On the other hand, Trab's boy might worm himself into his intimacy, and tell him things, or, reckless and desperate wretch as I knew he could be, might hoot him in the high street. My patroness, too, might hear of him and not approve. On the whole, I resolved to leave the avenger behind. It was the afternoon coach by which I had taken my place, and, as winter had now come round, I should not arrive at my destination until two or three hours after dark. Our time of starting from the cross keys was two o'clock. I arrived on the ground at a quarter of an hour to spare, attended by the avenger, if I may connect that expression with one who never attended on me, if he could possibly help it. At that time it was customary to carry convicts down to the dockyards by stagecoach, as I had often heard of them in the capacity of outside passengers, and had more than once seen them on the high road, dangling their iron legs over the coach roof, I had no cause to be surprised, when Herbert, meeting me in the yard, came up and told me there were two convicts going down with me. But I had a reason, that was an old reason now, for constitutionally faltering whenever I heard the word convict. "'You don't mind them, Handel?' said Herbert. "'Oh, no. I thought you seemed as if you didn't like them.' "'I can't pretend that I do like them, and I suppose you don't particularly, but I don't mind them.' "'See? There they are,' said Herbert, "'coming out of the tap.' What a degraded and vile sight it is! They had been treating their guard, I suppose, for they had a jailer with them, and all three came out wiping their mouths on their hands. The two convicts were handcuffed together, and had irons on their legs—irons of a pattern that I knew well. They wore the dress that I likewise knew well. Their keeper had a brace of pistols, and carried a thick-knobbed bludgeon under his arm but he was on terms of good understanding with them, and stood, with them beside him, looking on at the putting to of the horses, rather with an air as if the convicts were an interesting exhibition, not formally open at the moment, and he the curator. One was a taller and stouter man than the other, and appeared as a matter of course, according to the mysterious ways of the world, both convict and free, to have had allotted to him the smaller suit of clothes. His arms and legs were like great pin-cushions of those shapes, and his attire disguised him absurdly. But I knew his half-closed eye at one glance. There stood the man whom I had seen on the settle at the Three Jolly Bargemen on a Saturday night, and who had brought me down with his invisible gun. It was easy to make sure that as yet he knew me no more than if he had never seen me in his life. He looked across at me and his eye appraised my watch-chain, and then he incidentally spat and said something to the other convict, and they laughed, and slew themselves round the clink of their coupling manacle, and looked at something else. The great numbers on their backs, as if they were street doors, their coarse, mangy, ungainly outer surface, as if they were lower animals, 
their ironed legs apologetically garlanded with pocket-handkerchiefs. And the way in which all present looked at them, and kept from them, made them, as Herbert had said, a most disagreeable and degraded spectacle. But this was not the worst of it. It came out that the whole of the back of the coach had been taken by a family removing from London, and that there were no places for the two prisoners but on the seat in front behind the coachman. Hereupon a choleric gentleman, who had taken the fourth place on that seat, flew into a most violent passion, and said it was a breach of contract to mix him up with such villainous company, and that it was poisonous and pernicious and infamous and shameful, and I don't know what else. At this time the coach was ready, and the coachman impatient, and we were all preparing to get up, and the prisoners had come over with their keeper, bringing with them that curious flavour of bread-poultice, bays, rope-yarn, and hearthstone, which attends the convict presence. "'Don't take it so much amiss, sir,' pleaded the keeper to the angry passenger. "'I'll sit next you myself. I'll put them on the outside of the row. They won't interfere with you, sir. You needn't know they're there.' "'And don't blame me,' growled the convict I had recognised. "'I don't want to go. I'm quite ready to stay behind. As far as I'm concerned, anyone's welcome to my place.' "'All mine,' said the other, gruffly. "'I wouldn't have incommoded none of you if I'd had my way.' Then they both laughed, and began cracking nuts, and spitting the shells about. As I really think I should have liked to do myself, if I had been in their place and so despised. At length it was voted that there was no help for the angry gentleman, and that he must either go in his chance company, or remain behind. So he got in his place still making complaints, and the keeper got into the place next him, and the convicts hauled themselves up as well as they could, and the convict I had recognised sat behind me, with his breath on the hair of my head. "'Good-bye, Handel,' Herbert called out as we started. I thought what a blessed fortune it was that he had found another name for me other than Pip. It is impossible to express with what acuteness I felt the convict's breathing not only on the back of my head, but all along my spine. The sensation was like being touched in the marrow with some pungent and searching acid. It set my very teeth on edge. He seemed to have more breathing business to do than another man, and to make more noise in doing it, and I was conscious of growing high-shouldered on one side in my shrinking endeavours to fend him off. The weather was miserably raw, and the two cursed the cold. It made us all lethargic before we had gone far, and when we had left the halfway house behind, we habitually dozed and shivered and were silent. I dozed off myself, in considering the question whether I ought to restore a couple of pounds sterling to this creature before losing sight of him, and how it could best be done. In the act of dipping forward, as if I were going to bathe among the horses, I woke in a fright, and took the question up again. But I must have lost it longer than I had thought, since, although I could recognise nothing in the darkness, and the fitful lights and shadows of our lamps, I traced marsh country in the cold, damp wind that blew at us. Cowering forward for warmth, and to make me a screen against the wind, the convicts were closer to me than before. The very first words I heard them interchange, as I became conscious, were the words of my own thought.
two one-pound notes. "'How did he get them? said the convict I had never seen. "'How should I know?' returned the other. "'He had them stowed away somehow, given by friends, I expect.' "'I wish,' said the other, with a bitter curse upon the cold, "'that I had them here.' Two one-pound notes, or friends?' Two one-pound notes. I'd sell all the friends I ever had for one, and think a blessed good bargain. Well, so he says. So he says, resumed the convict I had recognised. It was all said and done in half a minute, behind a pile of timber in the dockyard. You're a-going to be discharged? Yes, I was. Would I find out that boy had fed him and kept his secret and give him them two one-pound notes? "'Yes, I would. And I did.' "'More fool you!' growled the other. "'I'd have spent them on a man in whittles and drink. "'He must have been a green one. "'Mean to say he knowed nothing of you?' "'Not Apeth. "'Different gangs and different ships. "'He was tried again for prison-breaking, and got made a lifer.' "'And what was that? Honour? "'The only time you worked out in this part of the country?' "'The only time.' "'What might have been your opinion of the place?' "'A most beastly place. "'Mud bank, mist, swamp, a work, work, swamp, mist, and mud bank.' They both execrated the place in very strong language, and gradually growled themselves out, and had nothing left to say. After overhearing this dialogue, I should assuredly have got down and been left in the solitude and darkness of the highway, but for feeling certain that the man had no suspicion of my identity. Indeed, I was not only so changed in the course of nature, but so differently dressed, and so differently circumstanced, that it was not at all likely he could have known me without accidental help. Still, the coincidence of our being together on the coach was sufficiently strange to fill me with the dread that some other coincidence might at any moment connect me, in his hearing, with my name. For this reason, I resolved to alight as soon as we touched the town, and put myself out of his hearing. This device I executed successfully. My little portmanteau was in the boot under my feet. I had but to turn a hinge to get it out. I threw it down before me, got down after it, and was left at the first lamp on the first stones of the town pavement. As to the convicts, they went their way with the coach and I knew at what point they would be spirited off to the river. In my fancy, I saw the boat, with its convict crew waiting for them at the slime-washed stairs. Again heard the gruff, "'Give way, you!' like an order to dogs. Again saw the wicked Noah's Ark, lying out on the black water. I could not have said what I was afraid of, for my fear was altogether undefined and vague, but there was great fear upon me. As I walked on to the hotel, I felt that dread, much exceeding the mere apprehension of a painful or disagreeable recognition, made me tremble. I am confident that it took no distinctness of shape, and that it was the revival for a few minutes of the terror of childhood. The coffee-room at the Blue Boar was empty, and I had not only ordered my dinner there, but had sat down to it before the waiter knew me. As soon as he had apologised for the remissness of his memory, 
he asked me if he should send boots for Mr. Pumblechook. "'No,' said I, "'certainly not.' The waiter, it was he who had brought up the great remonstrance from the commercials on the day when I was bound, appeared surprised, and took the earliest opportunity of putting a dirty old copy of a local newspaper so directly in my way that I took it up and read this paragraph. Our readers will learn, not altogether without interest, in reference to the recent romantic rise in fortune of a young artificer in iron of this neighbourhood. What a theme, by the way, for the magic pen of our as yet not universally acknowledged townsman, to be, the poet of our columns. At the youth's earliest patron, companion, and friend, was a highly respected individual, not entirely unconnected with the corn and seed trade and whose eminently convenient and commodious business premises are situate within a hundred miles of the high street. It is not wholly irrespective of our personal feelings that we record him as the mentor of our young Telemachus, for it is good to know that our town produced the founder of the latter's fortunes. Does the thought-contracted brow of the local sage, or the lustrous eye of the local beauty, inquire whose fortunes? We believe that Quinton Matsis was the blacksmith of Antwerp. Verb. Sap. I entertain a conviction, based upon large experience, that if in the days of my prosperity I had gone to the North Pole, I should have met somebody there, wandering Eskimo or civilised man, who would have told me that Pumblechook was my earliest patron, and the founder of my fortunes. End of chapter 28「it was too early yet to go to Miss Havisham's, so I loitered into the country on Miss Havisham's side of town, which was not Joe's side. I could go there to-morrow, thinking about my patroness, and painting brilliant pictures of her plans for me. She had adopted Estella, she had as good as adopted me, and it could not fail to be her intention to bring us together. She reserved it for me to restore the desolate house admit the sunshine into the dark rooms, set the clocks a-going and the cold hearths a-blazing, tear down the cobwebs, destroy the vermin—in short, do all the shining deeds of the young knight of romance, and marry the princess. I had stopped to look at the house as I passed, and its seared red-brick walls, blocked windows, and strong green ivy, clasping even the stacks of chimneys, with its twigs and tendons, as if with sinewy old arms had made up a rich, attractive mystery, of which I was the hero. Estella was the inspiration of it, and the heart of it, of course. But though she had taken such strong possession of me, though my fancy and my hope were set upon her, though her influence on my boyish life and character had been all-powerful, I did not, even that romantic morning, invest her with any attributes, save those she possessed. I mention this in this place, of a fixed purpose, because it is the clue by which I am to be followed into my poor labyrinth. 
according to my experience, the conventional notion of a lover cannot be always true. The unqualified truth is, that when I loved Estella with the love of a man, I loved her simply because I found her irresistible. Once for all, I knew to my sorrow, often and often, if not always, that I loved her against reason, against promise, against peace, against hope, against happiness, against all discouragement that could be. Once for all, I loved her none the less, because I knew it, and it had no more influence in restraining me than if I had devoutly believed her to be human perfection. I have so shaped out my walk as to arrive at the gate at my old time. When I had rung at the bell with an unsteady hand, I turned my back upon the gate, while I tried to get my breath, and keep the beating of my heart moderately quiet. I heard the side-door open, and steps come across the courtyard, but I pretended not to hear, even when the gate swung on its rusty hinges. Being at last touched on the shoulder, I started and turned. I started much more naturally then, to find myself confronted by a man in a sober grey dress. The last man I should have expected to see in that place of porter at Miss Havisham's door. Orlick? Ah, young master, there's more changes than yours. But come in, come in. It's opposed to my orders to hold the gate open. I entered, and he swung it, and locked it, and took the key out. "'Yes,' said he, facing round after doggedly preceding me a few steps toward the house, "'here I am.' "'How did you come here?' "'I come her,' he retorted, "'on my legs. I had my box brought alongside me in a barrow. "'Are you here for good?' "'I ain't her for harm.' "'Young master, I suppose?' "'I was not so sure of that. "'I had leisure to entertain the retort in my mind, "'while he slowly lifted his heavy glance from the pavement, "'up my legs and arms to my face. "'Then you are left the forge,' I said. "'Do this look like a forge?' replied Orlick, "'sending his glance all round him with an air of injury. "'Now, do it look like it?' I asked him how long he had left Gargory's forge. "'One day is so like another here,' he replied, "'that I don't know without casting it up. However, I come o'er some time since you left.' "'I could have told you that, Orlick. "'Ah,' said he dryly, "'but then you've got to be a scholar.' By this time we had come to the house where I found his room to be one just within the side door, with a little window in it looking on the courtyard. In its small proportions, it was not unlike the kind of place usually assigned to a gate-porter in Paris. Certain keys were hanging on the wall, to which he now added the gate-key, and his patchwork-covered bed was in a little inner division or recess. The whole had a slovenly, confined, and sleepy look, like a cage for a human dormouse while he, looming dark and heavy in the shadow of a corner by the window, looked like the human dormouse for whom it was fitted up, as indeed he was. "'I never saw this room before,' I remarked. "'But there used to be no porter here.' "'No,' said he. "'Not till it got about, 
that there was no protection on the premises, and it come to be considered dangerous, with convicts and tag and rag and bobtail going up and down. And then I was recommended to the place as a man who could give another man as good as he brought, and I took it. It's easier than bellowsing and hammering. That's loaded, that is. My eye had been caught by a gun with a brass-bound stock over the chimney-piece, and his eye had followed mine. "'Well,' said I, not desirous of more conversation, "'shall I go up to Miss Havisham?' "'Burn me if I know,' he retorted, first stretching himself and then shaking himself. "'My orders ends here, young master. I give this here bell a rap with this here hammer, and you go on along the passage till you meet somebody.' "'I am expected, I believe. Burn me twice over, if I can say.' said he. Upon that, I turned down the long passage which I had first trodden in my thick boots, and he made his bell sound. At the end of the passage, while the bell was still reverberating, I found Sarah Pocket, who appeared to have now become constitutionally green and yellow, by reason of me. "'Oh!' said she. "'You, is it, Mr. Pip?' "'It is, Miss Pocket.' I'm glad to tell you that Mr. Pocket and family are all well. "'Are they any wiser?' said Sarah, with a dismal shake of the head. "'They had better be wiser than well. Ah, oh, Matthew, Matthew! You know your way, sir?' Tolerably, for I had gone up the staircase in the dark many a time. I ascended it now, in lighter boots than of yore, and tapped in my old way at the door of Miss Havisham's room. "'Pip's rap!' I heard her say immediately. "'Come in, Pip!' She was in her chair, near the old table, in the old dress, with her two hands crossed on her stick, her chin resting on them, and her eyes on the fire. Sitting near her, with the white shoe that had never been worn, in her hand, and her head bent as she looked at it, was an elegant lady whom I'd never seen. "'Come in, Pip!' Miss Havisham continued to mutter, without looking round or up. "'Come in, Pip. How do you do, Pip? So you kiss my hand as if I were a queen, eh? Well?' She looked up at me suddenly, only moving her eyes, and repeated in a grimly playful manner, "'Well?' "'I heard, Miss Havisham,' said I, rather at a loss, that you were so kind as to wish me to come and see you, and I came directly. Well? The lady, whom I had never seen before, lifted up her eyes and looked archly at me, and then I saw that the eyes were Estella's eyes. But she was so much changed, was so much more beautiful, so much more womanly, in all things winning admiration, had made such wonderful advance, that I seemed to have made none. I fancied, as I looked at her, that I slipped hopelessly back into the coarse and common boy again. Oh, the sense of distance and disparity that came upon me, and the inaccessibility that came about her. She gave me her hand. I stammered something about the pleasure I felt in seeing her again, and about my having looked forward to it for a long, long time. "'Do you find her much changed, Pip?' asked Miss Havisham with her greedy look, 
and striking her stick upon a chair that stood between them, as a sign to me to sit down there. "'When I came in, Miss Havisham, I thought there was nothing of Estella in the face or figure, but now it all settles down so curiously into, into the old—' "'What?' "'You're not going to say into the old Estella?' Miss Havisham interrupted. "'She was proud and insulting, and you wanted to go away from her. Don't you remember?' I said confusedly that that was long ago, and that I knew no better then, and the like. Estella smiled with perfect composure, and said she had no doubt of my having been quite right, and of her having been very disagreeable. "'Is he changed?' Miss Havisham asked her. "'Very much,' said Estella, looking at me. "'Less coarse and common,' said Miss Havisham, playing with Estella's hair. Estella laughed, and looked at the shoe in her hand, and laughed again, and looked at me, and put the shoe down. She treated me as a boy still, but she lured me on. We sat in the dreamy room among the old strange influences which had so wrought upon me, and I learnt that she had but just come home from France, and that she was going to London. Proud and willful as of old, she had brought those qualities into such subjection to her beauty, that it was impossible, and out of nature—or I thought so—to separate them from her beauty. Truly, it was impossible to dissociate her presence from all those wretched hankerings after money and gentility that had disturbed my boyhood, from all those ill-regulated aspirations that had first made me ashamed of home and Joe, from all those visions that had raised her face in the glowing fire, struck it out of the iron on the anvil, extracted it from the darkness of night to look in at the wooden window of the forge and flit away. In a word, it was impossible for me to separate her, in the past or in the present, from the innermost life of my life. It was settled that I should stay there all the rest of the day, and return to the hotel at night, and to London to-morrow. When we had conversed for a while, Miss Havisham sent us two out to walk in the neglected garden. On our coming in by and by, she said, I should wheel her about a little, as in times of yore. So. Estella and I went out into the garden by the gate through which I had strayed to my encounter with the pale young gentleman, now Herbert. I, trembling in spirit and worshipping the very hem of her dress, she, quite composed and most decidedly not worshipping the hem of mine, as we drew near to the place of encounter, she stopped and said, "'I must have been a singular little creature to hide and see that fight that day, but I did.' and I enjoyed it very much. "'You rewarded me very much.' "'Did I?' she replied, in an incidental and forgetful way. "'I remember I entertained a great objection to your adversary, because I took it ill that he should be brought here to pester me with his company.' "'He and I are great friends now.' "'Are you? I think I recollect, though, that you read with his father.' "'Yes.' I made the admission with reluctance, for it seemed to have a boyish look, and she already treated me more than enough like a boy. "'Since your change of fortune and prospects, you have changed your companions,' said Estella. "'Naturally,' said I. "'And necessarily,' 
she added, in a haughty tone, "'what was fit company for you once, would be quite unfit company for you now.' In my conscience, I doubt very much whether I had any lingering intention left of going to see Joe. But if I had, this observation put it to flight. "'You had no idea of your impending good fortune in those times?' said Estella, with a slight wave of her hand, signifying in the fighting times. "'Not the least.' The air of completeness and superiority with which she walked at my side, and the air of youthfulness and submission with which I walked at hers, made a contrast that I strongly felt. It would have rankled in me more than it did, if I had not regarded myself as eliciting it by being so set apart from her, and assigned to her. The garden was too overgrown and rank for walking in with ease, and after we had made a round of it twice or thrice, we came out again into the brewery-yard. I showed her to a nicety where I had seen her walking on the casks that first old day, and she said, with a cold and careless look in that direction, "'Did I?' I reminded her where she had come out of the house and given me my meat and drink, and she said, "'I don't remember.' "'Not remember that you made me cry?' said I. "'No,' said she, and shook her head and looked about her. I verily believe that her not remembering, and not minding in the least, made me cry again, inwardly, and that is the sharpest crying of all. "'You must know,' said Estella, condescending to me as a brilliant and beautiful woman might, "'that I have no heart.' if that has anything to do with my memory." I got through some jargon to the effect that I took the liberty of doubting that, that I knew better, that there could be no such beauty without it. "'Oh! I have a heart to be stabbed in or shot in, I have no doubt,' said Estella. "'And, of course, if it ceased to beat, I should cease to be. But you know what I mean. I have no softness there. No sympathy, sentiment, nonsense. What was it that was borne in upon my mind, when she stood still and looked attentively at me? Anything that I had seen in Miss Havisham? No. In some of her looks and gestures there was that tinge of resemblance to Miss Havisham, which may often be noticed to have been acquired by children, from grown person with whom they have been much associated and secluded, and which— when childhood has passed, will produce a remarkable occasional likeness of expression between faces that are otherwise quite different. And yet I could not trace this to Miss Havisham. I looked again, and though she was still looking at me, the suggestion was gone. "'What was it?' "'I am serious,' said Estella, not so much with a frown, for her brow was smooth, as with the darkening of her face. If we are to be thrown much together, you'd better believe it at once. No," imperiously stopping me, as I opened my lips, "'I have not bestowed my tenderness anywhere. I have never had any such thing.' In another moment we were in the brewery, so long disused, and she pointed to the high gallery, where I had seen her going out on that same first day, and told me she remembered to have been up there and to have seen me standing scared below. As my eyes followed her white hand, again the same dim suggestion that I could not possibly grasp, 
crossed me. My involuntary start occasioned her to lay her hand upon my arm. Instantly the ghost passed once more, and was gone. "'What was it? What is the matter?' asked Estella. "'Are you scared again?' "'I should be, if I believed what you said just now,' I replied, to turn it off. "'Then you don't? Very well. It is said, at any rate. Miss Havisham will soon be expecting you at your old post, though I think that might be laid aside now with other old belongings. Let us make one more round of the garden, and then go in. Come, you shall not shed tears for my cruelty to-day. You shall be my page, and give me your shoulder." Her handsome dress had trailed upon the ground. She held it in one hand now, and with the other lightly touched my shoulder as we walked. We walked round the ruined garden twice or thrice more, and it was all in bloom for me. If the green and yellow growth of weed in the chinks of the old wall had been the most precious flowers that ever blew, it could not have been more cherished in my remembrance. There was no discrepancy of years between us, to remove her far from me. We were of nearly the same age, though of course the age told for more in her case than in mine. But the air of inaccessibility which her beauty and her manner gave her, tormented me, in the midst of my delight and at the height of the assurance, I felt that our patroness had chosen us for one another. Wretched boy! At last we went back into the house, and there I heard with surprise that my guardian had come down to see Miss Havisham on business, and would come back to dinner. The old wintry branches of chandeliers in the room, where the mouldering table was spread, had been lighted while we were out, and Miss Havisham was in her chair, and waiting for me. It was like pushing the chair itself back into the past, when we began the old slow circuit round about the ashes of the bridal feast. But, in the funereal room, with that figure of the grave fallen back in the chair, fixing its eyes upon her, Estella looked more bright and beautiful than before, and I was under stronger enchantment. The time so melted away, that our early dinner-hour drew close at hand and Estella left us to prepare herself. We had stopped near the centre of the long table, and Miss Havisham, with one of her withered arms stretched out of the chair, rested that clenched hand upon the yellow cloth. As Estella looked back over her shoulder, before going out at the door, Miss Havisham kissed that hand to her, with a ravenous intensity that was of its kind quite dreadful. Then, Estella being gone and we two left alone, she turned to me, and said in a whisper, "'Is she beautiful, graceful, well-grown? Do you admire her?' "'Everybody must who sees her, Miss Havisham.' She drew an arm round my neck, and drew my head close down to hers, as she sat in the chair. "'Love her! Love her! Love her! How does she use you?' Before I could answer, if I could have answered so difficult a question at all, she repeated, Love her! Love her! Love her! If she favours you, love her! If she wounds you, love her! 
if she tears your heart to pieces, and as it gets older and stronger, it will tear deeper. Love her, love her, love her. Never had I seen such passionate eagerness as was joined to her utterance of these words. I could feel the muscles of the thin arm round my neck swell with the vehemence that possessed her. Hear me, Pip. I adopted her to be loved. I bred her and educated her to be loved. I developed her into what she is, that she might be loved. Love her. She said the word often enough, and there could be no doubt that she meant to say it. But if the often repeated word had been hate instead of love, despair, revenge, dire death, it could not have sounded from her lips more like a curse. "'I'll tell you this,' said she, in the same hurried, passionate whisper. "'What real love is, it is blind devotion, unquestioning self-humiliation, utter submission, trust and belief against yourself and against the whole world, giving up your whole heart and soul to the smiter, as I did.' When she came to that, and to a wild cry that followed that, I caught her round the waist for she rose up in the chair, in her shroud of a dress, and struck at the air as if she would as soon have struck herself against the wall, and fallen dead. All this passed in a few seconds. As I drew her down into her chair, I was conscious of a scent that I knew, and turning, saw my guardian in the room. He always carried—I have not yet mentioned it, I think—a pocket-handkerchief of rich silk, and of imposing proportions which was of great value to him in his profession. I have seen him so terrify a client or a witness by ceremoniously unfolding this pocket-handkerchief, as if he were immediately going to blow his nose, and then pausing, as if he knew he should not have time to do it before such client or witness committed himself, that the self-committal has followed directly, quite as a matter of course. When I saw him in the room, he had this expressive pocket-handkerchief in both hands, and was looking at us. On meeting my eye, he said plainly, by a momentary and silent pause in that attitude, Indeed? Singular. And then put the handkerchief to its right use, with wonderful effect. Miss Havisham had seen him as soon as I, and was, like everybody else, afraid of him. She made a strong attempt to compose herself, and stammered that he was as punctual as ever. "'As punctual as ever,' he repeated, coming up to us. "'How do you do, Pip? Shall I give you a ride, Miss Havisham? Once round? And so you are here, Pip.' I told him when I had arrived, and how Miss Havisham had wished me to come and see Estella, to which he replied, "'Ah, very fine young lady!' Then he pushed Miss Havisham in her chair before him, with one of his large hands, and put the other in his trousers' pocket, as if the pocket were full of secrets. "'Well, Pip, how often have you seen Miss Stella before?' said he, when he came to a stop. "'How often?' "'Ah, how many times? Ten thousand times? Oh, certainly not so many. Twice?' "'Jaggers,' interposed Miss Havisham, much to my relief, Leave my Pip alone, and go with him to your dinner. 
he complied, and we groped our way down the dark stairs together. While we were still on our way to those detached apartments across the paved yard at the back, he asked me how often I had seen Miss Havisham eat and drink, offering me a breadth of choice, as usual, between a hundred times and once. I considered, and said, Never. And never will, Pip, he retorted with a frowning smile. She has never allowed herself to be seen doing either, since she lived this present life of hers. She wanders about in the night, and then lays hands on such food as she takes. "'Pray, sir,' said I, "'may I ask you a question?' "'You may,' said he, "'and I may decline to answer it. Put your question.' "'Estella's name? Is it Havisham, or—' I had nothing to add. "'Or what?' said he. "'Is it Havisham?' "'It is Havisham.' This brought us to the dinner-table, where she and Sarah Pocket awaited us. Mr. Jaggers presided, Estella sat opposite to him, I faced my green and yellow friend. We dined very well, and were waited on by a maid-servant, whom I had never seen in all my comings and goings, but who, for anything I know, had been in that mysterious house the whole time. After dinner, a bottle of choice old port, was placed before my guardian. He was evidently well acquainted with the vintage, and the two ladies left us. Anything to equal the determined reticence of Mr. Jaggers under that roof, I never saw elsewhere, even in him. He kept his very looks to himself, and scarcely directed his eyes to Estella's face once during dinner. When she spoke to him, he listened, and in due course answered, but never looked at her, that I could see. On the other hand, she often looked at him, with interest and curiosity, if not distrust, but his face never showed the least consciousness. Throughout dinner, he took a dry delight in making Sarah Pocket greener and yellower, by often referring in conversation with me to my expectations. But here again he showed no consciousness, and even made it appear that he extorted, and even did extort, though I don't know how, those references out of my innocent self. And when he and I were left alone together, he sat with an air upon him of general lying by, in consequence of information he possessed, that really was too much for me. He cross-examined his very wine, when he had nothing else in hand. He held it between himself and the candle, tasted the port, rolled it in his mouth, swallowed it, looked at his glass again, smelt the port, tried it, drank it, filled again, and cross-examined the glass again, until I was as nervous as if I had known the wine to be telling him something to my disadvantage. Three or four times I feebly thought I would start conversation, but whenever he saw me going to ask him anything, he looked at me with his glass in his hand, and rolling his wine about in his mouth, as if requesting me to take notice that it was of no use, for he couldn't answer. I think Miss Pocket was conscious that the sight of me involved her in the danger of being goaded to madness, and perhaps tearing off her cap, which was a very hideous one, in the nature of a muslin mop, and strewing the ground with her hair, which assuredly had never grown on her head. She did not appear when we afterwards went up to Miss Havisham's room, and we four played at whist. In the interval, Miss Havisham, in a fantastic way, 
had put some of the most beautiful jewels from her dressing-table into Estella's hair, and about her bosom and arms, and I saw even my guardian look at her from under his thick eyebrows, and raise them a little, when her loveliness was before him, with those rich flushes of glitter and colour in it. Of the manner and extent to which he took our trumps into custody, and came out with mean little cards at the ends of hands, before which the glory of our kings and queens was utterly abased, I say nothing, nor of the feeling that I had, respecting his looking upon us personally, in the light of three very obvious and poor riddles, that he had found out long ago. What I suffered from was the incompatibility between his cold presence and my feelings towards Estella. It was not that I knew I could never bear to speak to him about her, that I knew I could never bear to hear him creak his boots at her, that I knew I could never bear to see him wash his hands of her. It was that my admiration should be within a foot or two of him. It was that my feelings should be in the same place with him. That was the agonising circumstance. We played until nine o'clock, and then it was arranged that when Estella came to London, I should be forewarned of her coming, and should meet her at the coach, and then I took leave of her, and touched her, and left her. My guardian lay in the boar, in the next room to mine. Far into the night, Miss Havisham's words, "'Love her! Love her! Love her!' sounded in my ears. I adapted them for my own repetition, and said to my pillow, "'I love her! I love her! I love her!' hundreds of times. Then a burst of gratitude came upon me, that she should be destined for me, once the blacksmith's boy. Then I thought if she were, as I feared, by no means rapturously grateful for that destiny yet, when would she begin to be interested in me? When should I awaken the heart within her, that was mute and sleeping now? Ah, me! I thought those were high and great emotions. But I never thought there was anything low and small in my keeping away from Joe, because I knew she would be contemptuous of him. It was but a day gone, and Joe had brought the tears into my eyes. They had soon dried. God forgive me. Soon dried. End of chapter 29「Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.